The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. It's made possible in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual, Cumberland Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. State and local governments spend about $4 trillion each year. That's trillion with a T. Did you ever ask yourself, where does all that money come from? And where does it go? Who manages it? And what do citizens and taxpayers have to show for it? In this podcast, we explore the budgets, bonds, and bureaucrats at the heart of state and local government finance. This is the Public Money Pod. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod. I'm Justin Marlowe, joined as always by extractor of cider, caretaker of chickens, and bona fide public money want Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. Thanks, Justin. Uh, Big weekend, I want to say, for anyone listening. uh, We are recording this on October 10th, and um, Justin, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking I'm going to talk about how uh, yet another University of Chicago professor has won a Nobel pr- uh, Prize in economics. That will be Douglas Diamond. Um, but no, that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> There's something far more birthday. important. <laughs> yeah, exa- yeah. I'm, I'm bearing the year. It was my birthday. I got a year older officially. <laughs> Maybe a year wiser. You you stole my surprise there, Liz. I was actually going to ask because I had uh, a, a little birdie called LinkedIn told me that <laughs> yesterday, October 9th, was your birthday. So I was I was going to surprise you, but you you got ahead of it. So happy birthday! Uh, a, a day late <laughs> must be nice to get to be uh, 32 all over again. <laughs> yeah, we can say that. <laughs> well, let's leave it. Let's leave it at Thank that. Thank you. <laughs> Very good. Well, so today we are going to talk about financing public schools, you know, which is something that we talk about um, sometimes kind of tangentially, but we don't maybe spend as much time as we should talking specifically about public schools. You know, when we, the, when we talk about the public money pod, we say state and local governments spend $4 trillion a year. And a big chunk of that $4 trillion is school districts, which are local governments on their own, but kind of a, a different type of local government, a, a particular type of special purpose local government. But a really important one, and one that is really central to the fiscal health of regions as a whole. And we're going to hear in a bit from Harpreet Hora, who is the budget manager for the Atlanta Public Schools, and someone who had a, has had a really interesting background in a couple of different dimensions of finance, both private and public sector, including time on uh, both city budgets and now in school district budgets. So someone who can give us a great perspective on how school districts fit into that broader landscape and some of the unique challenges that they've been facing as of late. To set that up, we should talk just a little bit about some of the the high level differences between school districts and cities and counties, which are, are, are tend to be our main focus. Certainly when we talk about school districts, you know, we're, we're usually talking about kind of a two-legged stool rather than a three-legged stool. When we talk about cities and counties and states as well, it, it tends to be the main revenue sources, of course, being property tax, sales tax, 
and uh, occasionally an income tax, certainly at the state level, and for some local governments, the income tax being a big piece of that. With school districts, you, you know, it's, it's it's basically property tax and intergovernmental revenues, right? Property tax and state support, and that state support is really, in many ways, the defining characteristic of school districts generally, but also, um, in some ways, the thing that makes public education in one state different from public education in other states, right? Some states where you have state support that is 30, 40, 50% of school district budgets, and then in other states where it's not nearly as much. And in those states, you have a lot more local contribution, usually in the form of property taxes. And there's some trade-offs there, right? That local contribution can come with some you know, real differences in how much is spent from one jurisdiction to the next, often tied to the ability of one district to pay more into its property tax system than than other districts. And so that's a, a perennial source of concern, right? Is that those questions of equity and spending and equity and capacity to spend. And so those are all the sort of fiscal policy issues that that swirl around public education. And so it's just a in some ways a similar setting in that we're dealing with revenue sources that are familiar to us, but also a very different setting in the way that the state and localities interact. And very different, given that you're talking about uh, you know a dynamic that can can change year to year, can change much more rapidly sometimes than what we see for say cities and counties. So it's a very interesting place, and the um, one that kind of mixes the the familiar with the unfamiliar. Now, Liz, you've looked at uh, you know covered school district budgets for a long time now, and you know when you think of the the eccentricities, when you think of what makes school district budgeting unique compared to our friends in state cities and counties, what's top of mind for you? You laid it out really nicely, Justin. Um, the the key thing being that there are perhaps even more equity issues um, or equity dangers perhaps, um, in school district funding than maybe any other kind of arm of government precisely because of that that property tax revenue correlation you know the the richer areas have more money to dump into their schools and you can see it you know it's very visible and and that also translates into to teacher pay and that's that's something i've written about quite a bit and and it was such a big issue prior to the pandemic it still is um but i think in 2018 when the year of of the teacher strikes it really, you know, occupied headlines for for a while, and and the issue there is the Great Recession. Um, you know, education funding used to be that untouchable third rail, um, but the Great Recession ended that, and so you know, edu- K twelve education got cut and by a lot of states, and you know, and it took some states. I um, still hadn't restored, um, considering inflation, still hadn't restored their pre-Great Recession level of funding by the time COVID came along. Most had, but um, there were a few that hadn't. And all of, you know, that very much affects teacher pay, um, which is what um, led to a lot of the, the teacher strikes. We saw that in Arizona. And and that's that's something that I think is, is a, a big focus now. And <laughs> it's kind of a it's a fighting for headline space, let's say. Um, and and I, we'll get into this a little bit with Harpreet, but just with COVID, so many so many teachers are, are done. They're retiring, um, along with a lot of other folks in the public sector. But uh, teachers, you know, and I say this as a, as, a, as a mom with a kid in public school. So, you know, and just watching and knowing what teachers have gone through in the last couple of years, um, no wonder a lot of them retiring. And so that, again, affects then a strain on the existing teachers, 
um, that continued demand need for a raised salary. And then, and where's that money gonna come from? A lot of places on the state side, they have introduced you know, new initiatives to increase state level funding specifically directed towards teacher pay. You know, in my opinion, that's that's great to see. Um, but I think on the other side of that revenue, that the property taxes, that's like a head scratcher. I can't, you know, I don't have any answers to, as to how to create better better equity there, um, and 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 specifically how to incentivize teachers in those higher need schools uh, to to stay. So I think all of that all goes back down to the property tax. Yes, increased state funding. Um, but that is a that is a big issue in education funding that I don't I don't see anybody you know completely solving yet. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely correct. And there there have been plenty of attempts to solve it, and decades of litigation at the state level in particular. And you look at the equity concerns that have been brought to the courts in states like Kansas and Washington State and others where they put this issue front and center at this question of what's the kind of optimal mix of state contribution, local contribution, state contribution that's designed to mitigate those disparities, um, horizontal disparities, as we might say, is disparities from one jurisdiction to the next. And, but it's this, as is often the case with fiscal policy, you know, you get the unintended consequences are often the story that gets all the attention when you start to shift those incentives around, you may get equity according to one measure of equity, usually on the spending side. But then that leads to all sorts of incentives that may lead to different outcomes, different learning outcomes, different kinds of priorities set within districts, limiting access to certain kinds of programming simply because it suddenly the state or other dollars aren't there to provide it, even though that programming is the thing that might have made a district really distinct and, and on and on and on. And so it's this sort of game of whack-a-mole that that's often played to try to get it right. And I don't know that, and we don't say this critically at all. I don't know that you can look at any state and say, you know, they've got it figured out. They've, they've got the right mix of, you know, local funding, state funding, state contributions that are designed to fill in gaps in what the locals can do and so on and so forth. It's a really, really challenging issue and a very emotional issue because it, it's, it's something that people, you know, care very, very deeply about. A, a piece that we, we've hinted at a little bit I think is also in some ways such an important part of the landscape for public education is just how many strings are attached to those dollars, right? Those, those state dollars especially often come with real restrictions on what you can do with them. And we hear stories from school district budget managers and chief finance officers that sometimes the difference between a really successful district and a kind of marginally successful district is a CFO or a budget manager who can get really creative in repurposing, moving money around, finding fungible dollars or making fungible dollars. And th that's great. And certainly as public money wonks, we, we get excited when we hear you know, about that kind of creativity and, and those sorts of stories, but that should not necessarily be the thing that defines whether a district is successful or whether the learning outcomes are, are what anyone wants. So it's a you know, it's, it's a perennial challenge. And, and if you're a state policymaker, if you're a, on a school board, if you are a city manager thinking about where those property tax contributions are coming from, these education, equity, and, and finance policy questions are on your radar, whether you want them to be there or not.
Well, we are fortunate now to be joined by Harpreet Hora, who is the budget manager for the Atlanta Public Schools, one of the largest public school districts in the country, something in the neighborhood of, I think, about 50,000 students. Uh, very important role and uh, a huge part of the landscape of public finance in greater Atlanta and really in the, in the Southeast as a whole. Uh, Harpreet, welcome to the pod. We're really thrilled to have you here. Thank you so much, Justin and Liz, for having me on your podcast. So the first question, arguably the most important here, is we could just where are you financially right now? You know, where where is APS financially? And obviously, the federal money is a big part of that. And anytime we have a a guest on who's practicing this stuff, the the first question always just kind of what's what's the landscape? Where are you financially right now? Yeah, I think overall financially, uh, the Atlanta Public School District is very sound. You know, we are very stable right now. Uh, and, and of course, you know, the federal funding has been a tremendous help and it has helped support our rapid response to COVID-19 initially. And then we continue to use those care funds to, you know, help us to focus on uh, recovery and intervention efforts in the current fiscal year uh, and also into the upcoming fiscal year. And we've used those funds to prioritize for safe return to in-person learning. Um, you know, address learning losses that happened due to COVID-19, to target any underserved students um, or those that were affected most by COVID. And of course, you know, maintaining those continuity of uh, services, uh, which includes, you know, basically providing any kind of uh, social or mental health uh, and food services, you know, because um, during COVID-19, uh, as you may know that a lot of school districts, in fact, I think all school districts provided uh, food to students uh, free of charge. So there was a lot of that as well. Now, Harpreet, you're known as a, as a real leader in this space. In fact, uh, currently serving on uh, the Government Finance Officers Association's Rethinking Budgeting Initiative, which is a group of folks who are coming together to rethink what uh, budgeting ought to be for local governments generally, including school districts, and uh, certainly have done a lot of innovative work. But I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit for starters about how you came to your role with Atlanta Public Schools, because you're someone who's worked across local government finance writ large. I think our listeners would love to hear just a little bit more about your uh, varied background. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Justin. So uh, before I came into the public sector, actually, I started off my career uh, in the private sector. Uh, I worked internationally. I worked in India. Then I worked in Frankfurt as well in Germany. Uh, moved to Canada, uh, worked there as well. Uh, my husband was doing his PhD there then. And then we moved to the U.S. Uh, when we moved to the U.S., I started off, um, you know, again, in the private sector first. Uh, but then uh, I had this opportunity to work for the city of Atlanta. That that changed things for me. That's when, uh, you know, I just loved uh, working in the public sector and I decided to continue on uh, here. And after my uh, work period at city of Atlanta, I moved to the city of Roswell, uh, worked there as a budget manager for um, a little over five years. And then uh, I got this great opportunity here at Atlanta Public Schools to lead uh, the budget department here as the executive director for budget services. Um, Harpreet, that sounds like such an interesting journey here. Um, and coming from someone who then truly obviously loves public finance, having been on both sides of the table here, 
I'm curious if we can kind of step back and look at what's happening with the economy overall. How are you all coping with inflation and, and rising costs? I'm assuming costs are rising. Also, uh, how's it affecting, you know, how you budget for personnel? So, yeah, I mean, inflation um, has affected everybody, is impacting all local governments and school districts. And we are definitely seeing the impact of inflation here at Atlanta Public Schools. During the budget development process, as you know, uh, departments you know, typically build anywhere between three to 5% uh, for inflation, but that inflation, as we all know, has been way higher than that. Uh, and nobody had anticipated that, you know. Uh, and as far as uh, non-personnel expenses are concerned, uh, we have seen an increase in fuel costs, supplies, equipment, professional services, parts and labor, you know, just to name a few. A lot of our vendors, in fact, uh, have not been holding the contract prices. Uh, and we have seen a huge increase in some contracts, you know, and I wasn't aware of this till I had uh, spoken to one of my fellow colleagues in the procurement department. And that was really interesting for me to find out. And though these expenses, you know, uh, make up a small percent of the budget, uh, they do have an impact, uh, and I'm sure it will impact how we budget for the upcoming fiscal year. Um, and then on the personnel side, we do expect to see an increase in the upcoming fiscal year, uh, like salaries and benefits, uh, you know, they make up about 65% of our budget. And that is where uh, we will see um, the biggest increase. Um, because we are uh, going to be doing a comp study very soon, and uh, I am anticipating a cost of living adjustment then. Just to follow up on the, the salaries question, um, I mean, I've covered public education finance for a long time, and every year, t- you know, t- people want slash need raises. So there's cost of living adjustment, and then there's there's raises, especially considering, you know, this sector in particular with teachers is a lot of burnout with COVID. I know that. Mm-hmm. Um, anecdotally, I've, I've seen, heard, read about a lot of teachers leaving. And so how is that base salary question uh, factoring into the personnel? So, uh, yeah, that is right. fact, for uh, this current fiscal year, we do have cost of living adjustments. And then we do have something called a step increase that school districts do. So in this uh, current fiscal year, for fiscal year 2023, we did give a step increase to all of our uh, staff members, you know, including teachers. Uh, but I don't think that was necessarily a cost of living adjustment. So that, that's what we've done so far. Uh, in the current fiscal year. And this was also in addition, you know, in in addition, we have also uh, been giving stipends out to a lot of teachers. So like there was one, I think that was given uh, in December of last year, last fiscal year. And uh, there were some stipends given prior to that as well. So, you know, to kind of with everything that the teachers uh, have had to deal with uh, due to COVID, and of course, there was also um, the $5,000 increment uh, that was given by our governor as well. Uh, that was part of their uh, raises. Yeah. Zooming out a little bit on that, I wonder if we could just talk about staffing levels generally. You know, it was really interesting as you watched COVID unfold. There were all sorts of mixed signals coming out. There, were, On the one hand, you heard about certain school districts that had returned to their uh, pre-COVID staffing levels pretty quickly, right? As soon as kids came back in person, uh, you had all of the support staff and, and others coming back to buildings almost immediately. And then you heard of other districts where 
they had a really hard time going out and, and refilling a lot of those positions, going into a tough labor market, trying to find particularly support staff and and uh, you know, people in you know facilities maintenance and food service and those sorts of roles. Um, where are you all with staffing levels kind of pre and post COVID and to what extent has the uh, salary increases and, and a lot of those kind of wage concerns that you just mentioned, you know, maybe played a role in, in getting those staffing levels to wherever they are right now? Yeah, I mean, uh, the staffing levels as compared to pre-COVID um, are lower. Uh, like, for instance, uh, if we talk about the current school year that we are in, you know, when the school year initially started off, we were at um, seven vacancies, you know, to be still filled. And this was about, and th these are the teacher positions I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the central office here. I mean, the central office too, we do have uh, a lot of vacant positions that we are still um, trying to fill right now. Because the school districts were struggling to hire teachers before the school year started, in fact, uh, the state legislature here in Georgia had passed House Bill 385 uh, during this year's legislative session, and the governor, in fact, signed it into law in uh, May of this year. Uh, and this bill basically, you know, permits the public school systems uh, to employ uh, retired teachers as classroom teachers in the areas of highest need, because for a large part, you know, we've been uh, struggling to hire teachers in the areas of uh, science, uh, you know, math and ELA. So hopefully uh, with this house bill, uh, you know, we will be able to address that issue. Uh, though right now, I think uh, we were, we are pretty good. Uh, we are fully staffed, I think, when it comes uh, to the teachers. But in the central office, uh, we, we are still, um, you know, behind. We, did, we do have a lot of vacant positions. Uh, and like you mentioned, uh, you know, we've also had a huge shortage of bus drivers uh, and had to increase the uh, hourly rate to be competitive in the market and attract candidates, you know, because a lot of the surrounding districts uh, were increasing their hourly rate. So we had to kind of come up to match them to uh, attract folks uh, to come and work for Atlanta Public Schools. So it has been uh, really tough for our transportation department, particularly, and even in the central office uh, departments, you know, we we have been struggling uh, with staffing and, uh, and, you know, we've had to reclassify some positions to attract good candidates. And, and, you know, yes, of course, the salary comes into play. And there has been, as you know, a lot of competition in the labor market. And we've lost a lot of our um, uh, staff to the private sector where, you know, firms are giving their employees the option to work 100% remote um, or at least, you know, two to three days a week. So that also, I think, uh, plays into all of this. Yeah, just to follow up on that, sorry, well, sort of two follow-up questions. I'm curious to hear, based on the early results, if you can say anything about whether that uh, legislation requiring or enabling bringing retired teachers back, um, has that been successful? I mean, have you been able to get retired teachers to take advantage of that in, in your experience? From what I know, I believe we have been getting applications from uh, some retired teachers who want to come back. Yes, but I don't have any numbers on that. I do not have details on that. Sure, sure. Yeah, I and mean, it's still still early, I'm sure. But yeah, it's always interesting because that is such a contentious thing in other places, right? The the, the retirement and, and coming back. But so it seems like a kind of a 180 from a, a policy perspective to now be encouraging it when not that long ago, a lot of districts were, were discouraging exactly that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. 
second quick follow-up. So on the work from home phenomenon, which is something that's of great interest to us here at the podcast, uh, you know, how do you see that fitting into your budget development going forward? You know, with respect, are there other kinds of investments you need to make uh, in IT systems or other kinds of uh, operational concerns to be able to facilitate the, the, the kind of work from home that you're seeing? Uh, or is it just at the moment, uh, not a lot of adaptation you think is going to be required? Currently, actually, here at Atlanta Public School Districts, uh, we do allow, the policy is to allow staff to uh, work from home or work remote uh, one day a week. We do have that. So in terms of investment uh, into technology, you know, to have uh, everybody set up to be able to do their job, uh, I think that was done initially, you know, when COVID hit, a lot of governments did that, you know, where uh, they, you know, they, they purchased laptops and, you know, headphones and any other equipment uh, that would be needed by staff to be able to do their jobs and to provide the service to the community that was needed to be provided. So I think we are good there right now. Kind of piggybacking off of that, that use of federal funds, let's say, I'm curious about any other specific, you know, uses for the federal funds that you all have planned capital projects as well. I mean, are you able to kind of incorporate that into to take advantage maybe of some existing existing plans that you had? In terms of capital projects for the CARES funds, I think most of it went into the technology investments, you know, that we just talked about, you know, uh, buying those um, uh, laptop or, or devices for our students so that they could, uh, you know, study from home, be able to attend their classes and uh, do their uh, assignments. So that is the only capital investment that I'm really aware of. And also, of course, um, to improve the air systems or within the school buildings, I know that they invested in some filters, some special filters. Uh, that is what I know about. Other than that, I'm not aware of any specific capital investments using the CARES funds. So obviously labor and staffing seems like it, it is one of, maybe if not the biggest challenge that Atlanta Public Schools is facing curious what other challenges uh, are kind of top of mind for you uh, in the next couple of budget cycles? I think the first biggest budget challenge uh, we will face in the next couple budget cycles is um, the ARPA funding going away. As you know, that funding is going to end in September 2024. So we have positions uh, that are currently being funded out of CARES, and uh, there are also some programs uh, that had been created during COVID that are being funded using these CARES dollars. Um, so I think once the CARES funding is exhausted, if we decide, I mean, if leadership decides to continue with these programs and positions, uh, then we will have to fund them using general fund dollars and um, senior leadership will be faced with making some tough decisions in the next couple budget cycles on how to sustain these programs if they in fact decide to continue with them and uh, they'll have to figure out what should be prioritized. Uh, so that's that's like the biggest challenge. Uh, the other challenge that I see uh, is uh, especially for the upcoming fiscal year is the possibility of the recession, you know. Uh, the inflation and again the rising prices that we talked about initially it is hard to tell right now what that dollar impact will be on the budget uh, but i do expect to see the personnel and non-personnel expenses to increase 
like I said, you know, we have already had many vendors amend their contracts and increase prices for services. Uh, there are some, in fact, you know, where we've seen a tremendous increase already. So um, that will be another uh, factor there, another big challenge. Because, you know, 77% uh, of our revenues uh, come from property taxes, uh, which are much more stable than sales tax revenues. And with um, all the new construction that we have happening around here in Atlanta, you know, we do expect the di digest to grow. Uh, but a large part of that increase in revenue will go towards uh, allocating funds for the inflationary adjustments, you know. Uh, the slowing of the uh, economy could also impact our state revenues because we do get uh, a portion of revenues. I think it's about 17%, I think, or 19% uh, that we get from state revenues. So in addition to the local revenues that we have. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about uh, how inflation is specifically on uh, affecting capital projects. Um, yeah, definitely. So on, on uh, as far as capital projects are concerned, uh, again, you know, um, we do expect to see uh, an impact from both the revenue and an expenditure perspective here, um, because our capital expenditures are funded through a special purpose local option sales tax, which we typically refer to as PLOST. Um, and with the rising costs, uh, consumers tend to spend less and that reduced spending will impact the sales tax revenue that we get, you know, which in turn will impact how we allocate resources uh, and which projects are prioritized. Um, uh, and then on the other hand, the rising prices also impact our ability to purchase. Uh, with the cost of material and labor uh, having increased, our purchasing power, you know, uh, with the same amount of money has reduced. Uh, so we are getting less value for our money now. So we get hit both ways from both the revenue side and from the expenditure side when it comes to capital projects. I was wondering if you could talk just maybe at a high level, Atlanta Public Schools is, is one of a few districts that has really tried to go in the direction of doing some budgeting, what we might call budgeting for outcomes or budgeting for using a budget process that's focused on you know, outcomes generally, as opposed to simply spending or, or outputs. I know it's early in that process, but I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about what's been happening and, and what the intent is for some of the, the changes in, in budgeting that you've seen in Atlanta Public Schools. So when it comes to budgeting, uh, allocation of resources till about five years back, we followed a normal budget process. Uh, you know, even when it comes to allocation to schools, um, there was no student-weighted funding. That is what we use now. We call it the student success funding uh, that we implemented uh, back in 2019. Uh, and that was basically to ensure equitable allocation of resources to schools so that students who come from a financial background where they don't have access to resources, you know, to be able to, you know, allocate funding in such a way that those students also get the opportunity to, um, you know, get the education uh, that they desire and that they should get. So, so that was one of the main reasons we had implemented the student-weighted funding formula about uh, five years back. Now with the, uh, you know, the Office of Equity, you know, having been established by our uh, superintendent, our current superintendent, uh, they have been uh, working on quite a few initiatives. Uh, one is the development of uh, these indexes, which will, or which are kind of like performance metrics, uh, which will help us determine 
uh, you know, how to best allocate resources, uh, both financial and personnel, uh, to help us achieve uh, some of the goals that we have laid out in our strategic plan that the leadership has laid out in the strategic plan for the district. So, and, and there is also uh, another initiative that we are working on, which is called the Academic Return on Investment. That one has just started off and we are trying it out with one particular initiative right now to, and, and then maybe scale it, you know, district-wide uh, on to other programs as well. And the basic intent of uh, of implementing the academic return on investment is to see uh, if the investments that we are making, the financial investments that we are making, are uh, you know getting us the desired results in terms of outcomes. Very interesting. We will definitely stay tuned to see how that unfolds for you. Well, thank you so much, Harpreet, for joining us. We certainly appreciate all that perspective. We we don't uh, hear from people on the public schools side nearly as often as we probably should. So we appreciate you sharing your perspective with us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast today, Justin and Liz. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Well, thanks again to Harpreet Hora from the Atlanta Public Schools uh, sharing her perspective on her budget and uh, what's to come and some of the unique challenges that they're facing. Really great insights. And it's always a pleasure to have a chance to hear from public schools folks because they are such an important part of the public money landscape. Now it's time, as always, for extra credit. If you have a question, send it to us and we will get to it. This week's question has to do with lease revenue bonds. Hi, this is Shelley from Minneapolis. Love the podcast. My question is, what are lease revenue bonds and how are they different from other types of bonds? Thanks so much. Well, thank you so much for that question. Uh, kind of a wonky question, but a really, really good one, particularly if you care about the many, many different ways that uh, states and localities creatively leverage their revenue sources to come up with investments in different kinds of capital projects. So I think the the short story on lease revenue bonds is that it's a, a way, what we might call a really indirect way for state and local governments to try to use revenues that are available to them. We, just to zoom out for a second, when we think about the basic distinction between the different types of bonds that are out there, we tend to make a distinction between what we call general obligation bonds. Those are bonds that are backed by the full faith and credit of a state or local government. So this usual, or, or a school district, in fact. And this usually means uh, property tax, income tax, sales tax. They will use whatever revenues are available to them to pay off those bonds. That's what makes it a general obligation. Revenue bonds, by contrast, are bonds that are backed by a specific revenue stream, usually uh, issued by, say, public utilities, where a utility might attach a surcharge or an increase in their rates to, say, your water bill or your electric bill, and that those additional revenues collected from customers are then used to build, to finance, and, and pay for upgrades infrastructure investments that that utility needs. And we see revenue bonds of all different sorts, uh, public utilities, hospitals, any uh, universities, public universities and private universities. Anytime you have a, a revenue stream that you can collect from your customer, from your consumer, from stakeholders, you can borrow money against that revenue stream. But that makes them revenue bonds. And so there's a huge debate about 
which are more credit worthy, right? There's some who would argue that having a specific revenue stream with dedicated customers is a really good buy. And then there's others who would say they would much prefer to have the full backing of a local government, have multiple revenue streams to pledge for a bond that makes general obligation bonds more attractive. And there's investors who are who get interested in, in both of them. Lease revenue bonds are a specific type of revenue bonds. With a lease revenue bond, what's happening is that government is deciding that it is not going to borrow money directly. What it's going to do is it's going to usually set up some sort of a special entity or a public authority. And that public authority is going to own and finance and operate in some cases, some specific kind of public infrastructure. And then it's going to lease that infrastructure to someone. The lease payments that come from who's ever using that particular piece of infrastructure will then be used to back the bonds that had to be issued to build the facility in the first place. So we see this, for instance, in, in the case of a lot of uh, stadiums, right, which can be a very controversial kind of public investment. But you as a, a state or a local government might set up a stadium authority or a convention authority and uh, build the facility, lease it to a team. And that team, that professional sports team pays rent, makes lease payments. Those payments from the team are then used to back the bonds. A big advantage of doing this, if you're a local government or a state government, is that more often than not, those bonds are not a direct obligation of that government. It gives you, in effect, uh, a workaround to say, this isn't really our debt. This is debt that's held by this public entity that you may or may not have created, but it's technically not debt on your balance sheet. And because the payments are coming from some other entity, and at any time you can choose to either end the agreement or not appropriate money to the agreement or whatever it might be, that gives a lot of flexibility. And so we see a lot of more economic development, um, projects that some consider to be maybe more speculative are often financed with these lease revenue structures because it gives state and local governments some flexibility in how they manage those investments without having to take the debt directly onto their balance sheets. So you can imagine all kinds of complexities and all kinds of challenges that we have to deal with when we do this type of borrowing, but it is a very popular structure in, in many segments of the municipal bond market. And as you can imagine, very controversial one, given the types of investments that it tends to finance. Liz, uh, thoughts on lease revenue bonds after that uh, very wonky explanation? Yeah, lease revenue bonds are, um, are, are very wonky, are very, very specific, <laughs> as you mentioned. And uh, as you were talking, Justin, I, I thought of a, a couple of examples of Governments deciding not to back a lease revenue bond when when push came to shove, and it was one of the first stories that I wrote for the Finance 101 series for for governing, and it was called Financial Illiteracy was the title <laughs> of the story, and I used a couple of examples, uh, and they were around lease revenue bonds. Actually, one was in Wenatchee, Washington, and it got its credit rating reduced uh, low investment grade after um, the town government decided not to um, support a regional sports arena that had defaulted on, on nearly 40, 42 million in debt. There's a couple of other examples of, of this and a lot of them around were around that like 2010, 11, 12 year timeframe, which is when the Great Recession really, really, really started hitting uh, government budgets. And what was happening is those arenas, the, the leases, the leases were 
not being renewed or they were being um, canceled. Um, and so this particularly with these with sports arenas, you know, they started seeing a lot, a lot less business. And therefore, when the lease is gone, you can't make the payments based on that. <laughs> There's no revenue stream. So then the next backstop is supposed to be the local government. But oftentimes they do see themselves separate as those those entities. But in in this case, in these cases at least, um, you know, the to the credit rating agencies, they said, nope, <laughs> we're right. the same essentially. Um, and so the the governments themselves got downgraded since we're getting really wonky, <laughs> you know, I thought I'd bring that up as an example because, um, you know, it can be confusing. I mean, there's so many different ways to issue, issue bonds and a lot, and they can seem and are for all intents and purposes, separate from a local government, you know, like just general obligation bond rating until there's trouble, you know? And so, um, that's, that, those are a couple of examples. I don't see a lot of that happening now. Maybe, uh, places have kind of, <laughs> I don't want to say learn their lesson, but definitely taking notice of, of what can happen. Yeah, definitely. There, there was a lot of really pronounced fiscal stress in the throes of the Great Recession and the aftermath of the Great Recession. I mean, keeping in mind, as we've said you know, multiple times, the Great Recession 2008, 2009, the, the revenue backlash for local governments and for states really hit a year later, right, to 2010, 2011. And, and so you saw exactly that kind of thing. And yeah, in, in Wenatchee and, and lots of other places that had engaged in these more sort of speculative economic development kinds of projects, they they had to reckon with, okay, now that the project is not going to pencil out, what do we do? And there were many examples of, just like you were saying, situations where local governments had to come in and backstop, sometimes voluntarily, sometimes involuntarily. And the it was really interesting. Around that time, we saw it wasn't a new word, but we saw a word being thrown around a lot that you didn't see very often prior to that, which was this notion of a moral obligation, right? A moral obligation. The idea that, yeah, you as the city government may not officially be on the hook for this liability associated with these bonds, but if it fails, it's going to be a real bummer for your core downtown <laughs> and uh, and it will create all sorts of you know drag on on your economy going forward and so you have certainly every interest if not perhaps an obligation to try to step in and do some sort of a workout or some some way of trying to bring that project back to life because it's in your interest to do so and so we saw a moral obligation being thrown around uh, quite a bit at that time and like I said there has there's been less of that it seems since then because those lessons were learned, but also because we've been fortunate to not have the kind of really severe revenue problems that we had in the immediate aftermath of the Great Recession. So great question and gave us a chance to uh, to, to get wonky, which we don't necessarily mind. We'll just say that. No. Uh, so <laughs> thanks again. And if you have a question, please be sure to send it to us uh, at publicmoneypod at uchicago.eu. Thanks. Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy and is made possible in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual, Cumberland Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. To learn more about the center, check out our website, municipalfinance.uchicago.edu. 
If you'd like to ask a question for our extra credit segment, send a voice memo to publicmoneypod at uchicago.edu. To see more of Liz Farmer's work, visit her website, farmersfieldonline.com, and her Substack, which is substack.lizfarmer.com. And you can also find her at Twitter at LizFarmerTweets. And thanks, as always, to our esteemed producer, Eric Gaber. If you like the podcast, be sure to follow us, drop a review, and tell your network. That's all for now. We'll catch you next time.